As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. From the Trump administration's earliest days, the Environmental Protection Agency has been unpicking Obama-era regulations. Now, the EPA is at it again. Yet even some of the industries that might benefit aren't all that excited about the changes. And some city slickers in Kenya are telling the villagers they left behind that they make a lot less money than they do. It might stop them being asked for help, but it also leaves many in the dark about the benefits that urban life brings. First up, though. The vast majority of the world's children who would normally be in school aren't. In America, some schools have shut their doors until September. Some are still open, but the majority are in limbo. Yesterday, President Donald Trump suggested they should consider reopening. You're seeing a lot of governors get out and they want to open it up. Many are thinking about their school system. Not a long way to go in the school system right now for this season, for this year. But uh, I think you'll see a lot of schools open up, even if it's for a very short period of time. I think it would be a good thing. In Britain, it's a similar story. Today, Education Secretary Gavin Williamson will appear before Parliament to face questions about when British pupils might resume their studies. For teachers, one of the biggest worries is keeping their students all on the same page. My main concern is this idea of the gap between students within the same school and that only getting wider as school closures continue. Kate Stockings teaches geography at Hampstead School in North London. Around 1,200 students aged between 11 and 18 from a variety of socioeconomic backgrounds used to all attend the same classes at the same time. In lockdown, it's been a different story. We've got some students who might be working with a laptop each and very good quality Wi-Fi, and they might be able to wake up in the morning, have their breakfast and start learning at 9 a.m., Whereas we've got other students who might be working from their phone, they might be sharing that phone, there might not be a laptop, there might not be a tablet for them to use, and they might be on uh, mobile data, mobile data that runs out, and when it runs out, they, they aren't able to connect to the internet. When we go back, it's just going to be incredibly difficult to get everyone back on track. Dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic has forced a lot of uncomfortable decisions in a lot of sectors about when lockdown policies might start to do more harm than good. Closing schools was very, very sensible at first, but I think we are now getting to a stage where the cost of keeping all these children out of education are becoming increasingly clear, whilst the benefits are looking increasingly thinner, shall we say. And therefore, I think it's really time to start the conversation about when are we going to reopen schools again. Sasha Nauta is The Economist's public policy editor. Take America, for example, and this also underlines the point of inequality, actually. So in the first weeks 
as schools made big efforts to put lessons online and to open platforms that everybody would log into, some schools were reporting that a third of pupils hadn't even bothered to log in, never mind, you know, take part in um, online classes. And at the other end, you know, at the very elite end, they were reporting near full attendance. I mean, in a lot of cases, this is a great deal of effort for what is, is hoped will be a relatively short interruption to a long education. Is it, is it so important what happens in, in this period? I think it is. I mean, it's a fair point, right? If you close a school for a week or two, what is that really going to matter? And I think in the grand scheme of things, probably not that much. But... Firstly, um, some evidence would fight me on that. So we know of teacher strikes as well as of students who in the past have faced closures related to weather that you can see things like that back in, in grades and how kids do further on in life. But more worrying is that we're beyond a few weeks now. If that extends into summer and if you live in a country such as the United States that has long summer holidays. Before you know it, you know, you haven't had education for six months. And by some calculations, the impact of that is really rather substantial. So to give you a sort of back of the napkin calculation here, summer learning loss, which is this phenomenon where primary school kids over the summer months as they relax, lose quite a big chunk of their, for example, maths attainment, if you double that, or if you basically take that as your basis for what they might be losing right now, some kids could lose as much as a year's maths attainment at the end of this, presuming that schools don't open until until the autumn. So all of this makes it a relatively compelling case for, for opening schools again, but there is one big case against, which is that there's a pandemic on. Yes, Absolutely. And that's why it was the right decision to close all schools early on and why reopening them shouldn't be done lightly. However, given all the costs that I've just mentioned, doing nothing also comes with a real cost. And on the flip side, on the sort of what are the benefits of closing schools, you know, where does that fit into our lockdown social distancing strategy? Although the evidence is thinner than we want it to be, everything that's starting to come out seems to suggest that particularly young children are less likely to get sick with COVID, but probably also that they are less likely to be the silent assassins, if you will, that could bring the disease to their grandparents, etc., as as they are with, for example, a seasonal flu. So I say this with caution because we are still in this stage of gathering evidence, but countries like Denmark and also the Netherlands, which will open primary schools in a few weeks, are making these decisions because they think the evidence is strong enough to take that risk, and certainly given the costs that they're seeing. But in particular, in, in a situation where the evidence is changing all the time, you can imagine that parents would be pretty reluctant to send their kids back to school before everything was crystal clear. I can completely imagine that. There are some very good reasons for parents to keep a child at home. But on the whole, I think we're going to have to take quite a tough line here on parents who simply feel uncomfortable and say, we are reopening schools for the good of your children. We're taking all sorts of precautions. Um, But when schools reopen, more or less the same rules will apply. 
it's going to be difficult to come back into the highly structured day, the highly structured routine of school. For teacher Kate Stockings, it's crucial to make sure that Hampstead School's parents feel reassured the right precautions are in place. If we open schools too quickly and the attendance is therefore really low as a result, then we haven't really achieved anything. Because if we open it and the most vulnerable children are not there because their parents are keeping them at home because they're scared or they're still concerned about the virus, that gap between students, between those that are in school and those aren't, is only going to increase further um, if we reopen schools too early. For a lot more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist. To get 12 issues for $12 or £12, just go to economist.com slash radio offer. Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the 5th Annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com. America's Environmental Protection Agency has continued to roll back pollution protections introduced under the Obama administration, even as the COVID-19 pandemic rages. This time, the target has been federal regulations on air toxins and car fuel efficiency. And it's not entirely clear who stands to benefit. The Trump administration has finalized two very important rules. Idris Kaloun is The Economist's U.S. policy correspondent. The first regulates how power plants can emit mercury into the atmosphere. And the ruling there is that They find that it is no longer appropriate and necessary for the EPA to regulate the amount of emissions of mercury. A second ruling, which was passed earlier in March, rules that the fuel efficiency standards for future cars will be lower than they had planned to be. And the results of these are pretty significant. By the EPA's own calculations, the amount of carbon dioxide that's emitted as a result of the car rule in particular will be an additional billion tons of CO2. Um, that compares to about $6 billion that America admits as a whole, so it's a pretty significant amount. And mercury is something that causes brain defects in children. It can cause heart disease in people who are exposed to it for a while. It's a serious toxin, and the consequences of both those actions could be felt for several years and decades into the future. And why is the Trump administration doing this? The Trump administration itself says that they are continuing their deregulatory agenda of taking out and stripping rules that are too costly and that weren't appropriately justified at the time. So their arguments are, in the case of the mercury rule, that the benefits of reducing mercury pollution from power plants was vastly exceeded by the cost of implementing it. One of the philosophical reasons that the EPA and the Trump administration as a whole is pursuing this is, one, there's a general taste for undoing regulations that were put in place during the Obama administration, and two, that America needs to be a strong energy producer, that it needs to be able to produce as much as it can without being hindered by regulations. And I think that that also allows the president to then say politically that, uh, you know, he is for the working man. He's for the person who works in the coal industry and the oil industry. These have nostalgic significance when it comes to him running in the reelection as well. So do you think the upcoming election plays into the timing of this? 
So part of it is there's something called the Congressional Review Act, which allows Congress to rescind rules that have been passed relatively recently. Now, this was a rule that was passed in 1996. Uh, it had not been used very much, only once before the Trump administration. When they came into the office, they used it with great success to undo a lot of recently passed rules in the Obama administration. So a lot of legal scholars are speculating that the reason that the Trump administration is proceeding with such haste and gusto is that they are worried that if they don't pass these soon enough, that their own actions could be subject to a similar maneuver if there were a Democratic administration or a Democratic Congress uh, in January. And as for the companies that will be impacted by these regulatory changes, how are they responding? That's where it gets interesting. Some of the utilities, which are actually having to implement the Mercury rules, have sounded lukewarm to outrightly oppositional to the new Mercury rule, in part because they've already implemented the pollution control measures, but also because so mercury as a whole, the emissions in America have declined by 85%, depending on what point you measure them. They've successfully worked in, in, in their intention. They haven't driven up electricity prices too hard. One of the problems with the constant seesawing of regulation that happens between administrations is that this creates uncertainty for the regulated industries. And so for a similar reason, you see the car makers are also somewhat tepid about the change in fuel economy standards, partially because this creates uncertainty for them, but also because in other parts of the world, there is an increased demand for cars that are fuel efficient, both from governments and consumers who don't want to spend as much money on gas. It's not really to their advantage as much as, as you might think. Now, obviously, people who are selling the coal and, and, and the gas that, that powers these things are beneficiaries of it. And we know that they've sounded happy about the rollbacks, but not the car industry and, and not the utilities industry. But the, the administration nevertheless makes a, a sort of cost argument here. In order for an administration to pass any rule, they have to show that the benefits of the rule vastly exceed the costs. In the case of the Obama administration, when they put the mercury rules into place, they pointed out mostly that, yes, mercury is bad for children. But actually, when you implement mercury pollution controls in power plants, what you also do is you reduce the amount of nitrous oxide of fine particulate matter, which we know damages lungs and we know creates additional premature deaths. These are the, the so-called co-benefits of mercury regulation. And when they were justifying the rule, they pointed out that the benefits of those co-benefits were so large that they dwarfed the compliance costs of, of putting mercury rules into place, which were amounted to several billion dollars. Now, what the Trump administration has done is to say that you should only look at the direct benefits of the mercury pollution and not look at the co-benefits that I mentioned. And when it zeroes in on the benefits of reduced mercury, it identifies a very narrow pathway, which uh, is for children exposed to mercury caused by pollution from power plants that go into fresh water and is then caught by recreational fishers. But what we've seen with a lot of, of this kind of deregulation in particular out of, out of the EPA over the course of the administration is that these things get parked immediately in the courts. Yes, absolutely. And that is certain to happen in this case as well. All of that goes to show that the results of the election in November will matter a lot, not only to the course of the country as a whole, but also to these environmental provisions specifically. If Donald Trump is reelected, it's very likely that these rules survive their day in court eventually and become finalized, which means that to undo them, you'd have to go through another lengthy process. If, on the other hand, Donald Trump loses the election in November, it's quite likely that these rules will ultimately be rescinded and never implemented. 
Idris, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jason. The Trump administration argues these regulatory rollbacks will support key sectors, in particular car makers, brought almost to a standstill by the pandemic. This week's episode of Money Talks, our sister podcast, asks whether the industry can change gear fast enough to recover, or whether instead the world has passed peak car. Listen to Money Talks on Apple, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're going to lie about how much money you make, the tendency can be to over-exaggerate. In Kenya, the opposite might be true. When it comes to their pay in the city, urban migrants seem to be particularly cagey with folks back home, who might call them needing a favor. After my graduation, I secured a job within Nairobi. But I could not go back to the village or home to tell them how much I'm honey. That's Andrew Manuva, an accountant from Twandu village who now lives in Kenya's capital, Nairobi. I chose not to disclose my monthly income to anybody. It doesn't matter whether it's friends, whether it's relatives. This is because the fear which comes with disclosure of your income to these people, they will start immediately allocating you some responsibilities. You will start being pushed to help here and there. You will start being invited in wedding to finance. And they have a lot of expectation. It is not for you to decide when to help. It is them now to tell you how to help and when to help. And having in mind that you are newly employed, your priority, especially for the people who come from my area, is you get a good house, you settle, you look on how to maybe get a car for easy of movement. But if you disclose immediately, you will not have that chance. In Andrew's experience, this phenomenon is widespread amongst Kenya's urban migrants. And a recent study suggests the same. Some interesting evidence comes from a recent survey by Travis Basler, who's an economist at the University of Rochester. Liam Taylor writes about Africa for The Economist. I should stress it's quite a small sample. It's only a few hundred people. But what he found was that people in Western Kenya guessed that the average worker in Nairobi, the capital, earns about twice as much as the average worker in Bungoma, which is a small town near the border with Uganda. In fact, the gap was much larger than that. The average person in Nairobi makes four times as much money. So as part of the study, he was trying to work out why this was. And first of all, he went to ask people who had migrated. And he asked them, do your family back home know how much money you make? Nine out of 10 of those migrants said no, their family back home had no idea how much money they were making. And then after that, he went to the family and the friends who had been left back in the village. And he asked them how much money they thought the migrants were making. And Particularly interesting was the responses from parents. So parents thought that their children in the city were only making half as much as they actually were. And is there any evidence that this is constrained to Kenya? I mean, lots and lots of families left behind are dependent on remittances in the same way. So there's one study which looked at Tongan migrants moving to New Zealand and found that they underestimated how much they could earn in New Zealand. And what's quite interesting is that their expectations of their earnings were lower 
when they had relatives already living in New Zealand, which suggests that those relatives too were understating how much money they were making. And I guess that information gap kind of solidifies the gap between urban and rural. Yeah, so as I've already said, incomes are much higher in cities than in villages, and that's true in many countries. And so economists are puzzled by this. Why, why don't even more people move to cities? In his working paper, what Mr. Basler suggests is that because villagers have never heard about the true benefits of migration, they, they stay at home when they could be earning much more in the city. And so in an experiment to test this idea, he presented rural households with true information about the average income in cities, about food prices in cities, and wages in typical jobs. And two years later, when he went back to those households, he found that migration from those households was 33% higher than migration from a control group who had been told nothing. Well, I mean, this paints a pretty stark difference between the urban and the rural. I mean, costs are higher in the cities, quality of life can be lower in the cities. This isn't the full story. When I spoke to migrants with this story, lots of them were telling me how difficult life is when you get to the city. You're often living in an overcrowded slum. Things such as rent, electricity are all very expensive. But one of the interesting things from Mr. Basler's study was he asked migrants about their quality of life and how it compared once they'd moved to the city. And over half said their life was better in the city than it had been in the village. And about a quarter said their life had got worse. So that suggests that moving to the city does bring fresh opportunities, even if you still have you know, those, those guilt-inducing phone calls from your relatives asking for some of your money. Liam, thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And see you back here tomorrow. next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist.